Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. You'll remember, by the way, that he's in Galilee. When he says here he came home, this is his headquarters in Galilee. This is not Nazareth. And he's had this exploding ministry in Galilee, which we'll review in a minute. But when he comes home here, he's coming home to this place in Galilee, this headquarters. It might even be Peter's mother's home. Okay, so when he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he'll plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. <coughs> so I wanted to divide this passage into sort of three small sections. In the first section, we'll just talk about those first two verses, 20 and 21. And again, the setting is Jesus has an aggressive ministry. He's calling people. He's on the move, very active, casting out demons, healing people, teaching, healing, teaching, demon, teaching, teaching, demons, going to the, the synagogue. So it's very active. And in between all the miracles, Mark tells us he's teaching and he's preaching. So everything, his, his driving motivation is to preach and teach. And the crowds, you get the sense, are getting bigger and bigger. And we read last week in chapter 2 how they're basically smothering him. And when he arrives here at this scene, Mark points out, he says, there's a small boat out there, you know, go commandeer that small boat. And the idea is he knows he might need it to go out on the sea to escape the crowds that are just really... Um, mobbing him. So his, um, his popularity with the people is increasing tremendously every step of the way. And here he comes home into his place in Galilee. The crowd is gathering again. It says to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. So just another phrase telling us how extremely busy they were. They, they couldn't even eat, couldn't even find food. There's so many people packed into this house. The image before of the paralytic being let down through the roof. Remember how busy that house was? I mean, you get this scene of a complete mob scene. They don't even have time to eat. And it says here, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. So that 
word for his own people. Basically, it's his kinsmen. So it's basically saying his mother and his siblings arrived and they went out to take custody of him. And the word take custody is the same word that really could be translated seize. They went to seize him. And it's the same word that's used when the, um, the Jews sought to seize Jesus and take him away. It's the same word. When they seized John the Baptist to took him away to be imprisoned, it's the same word. So the idea here is the family has arrived and they want to like have an intervention, right? They want to grab Jesus and pull him out of this really probably chaotic mob scene. So what do you all think of that? His mother and his brothers arriving. Go ahead. The Greek, the Greek word, but it's a good question, actually, because there's some commentators who think, well, that's a possibility. His own people, maybe it was like an extended family or really close people from Nazareth that had arrived and didn't quite understand what was going on. But I think if you look at the end of this chapter in verse 31, uh, his mother and his brothers arrived and sent word and called him. So I think that sort of validates it. It's them. They're there. And I, I like the word intervention. They, they, Whether it's um, extended family, mom, mother and brothers were with that group is what this text mm-hmm. seems to say. Yep, and, and I don't have the Greek word here, but I know it, it's often translated kinsmen. So it's blood. It's the people. It, hang in there, because I think it's okay to, to yeah, view what's going on here. They came, and if it's in chronological sequence, which it might not be, that means that there were some people there and then the mother arrived yeah. later, if it's chronological. Right. You get the sense that they, they got word of all that's going on up here, 30 miles away, I guess, Nazareth to this area in Galilee, and they arrive. And I, and I use the word intervention because I, I, that's, I think, how you can best understand it in my mind is that um, they're worried about him. He can't eat. He's being mobbed. I mean, he really is. They're pressing on him. And that word in Chapter 2, I can't remember. It's basically their... Um, uh, pressing in on him. It's dangerous. They're going to crush him in any minute. So they're a little bit worried about him. But in 31 it says he's out of his mind. Mm-hmm. So we haven't got there yet. Yeah, you're jumping at <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. That actually validates what we're saying. So they're saying he's insane. They're saying he's, he's losing it. We need to come in here and help him. These are his, his mother and his brothers. Yeah, that's the uh, flesh versus the spirit. Right, right. Yes, you guys are getting all my notes. Did you read them? So, to, to sort of expand what, what's going on here, I did ask a loaded question. I'm glad. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, the, the idea here is you know, you think, is this um, Mary who, who gave birth as a virgin? Is her flesh. Well, first of all, I don't think Mary understood his death, right? I mean, there's no evidence in the Bible that she was told he is going to suffer and die on the cross. I don't think she understood that. She knew he was the Messiah, son of David, come to save. So in her flesh, she was 30 years had gone by. She, she, of course, knows he's special. He's the son of God. But she sees all this happening, and I think her flesh just says, oh, maybe off track here. And they, they want to uh, motivated to help him. 
That's how I see it. And I want you to remember too, though, in we read this before in Luke chapter 4. Flip there real quick. It's Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And remember, Luke is really a stickler for the chronology of how things are going to progress. And in Luke 4, immediately after Jesus is tempted in the desert, well, he doesn't say immediately, but after he's tempted in the desert, that's Mark's word. Um, pick up at verse 14 of chapter 4. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Okay, that was before what we're reading here in Mark. If you, if you study the chronology of how this probably went together, he had gone to Galilee and then returns to Nazareth in verse 16 of chapter 4 of Luke. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he closes the book. In verse 21, he began to say that to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which are falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So, again, before the scene we're reading in Mark, this is happening. And he said to them, verse 23, no doubt you'll quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And then he talks about what happened with Elijah going to the widow and Naaman the Syrian, uh, who was cleansed as a leper. Not all lepers were cleansed, but Naaman was cleansed. And then verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And then verse 31, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, which is sort of where this whole scene picks up. So at least I just remind you and myself that they were worried back then, right? I mean, Mary no doubt saw the whole crowd of the Pharisees leading a mob to throw him off a cliff in his own hometown, and then he sort of leaves and goes to Galilee. And I imagine they're like, boy, we've got to do something. They're going to kill him, even in Galilee. And they may have heard from the people in Galilee that these crowds are forming again. There's opposition that's building, and so that motivates them to go back there and had this intervention. And they even think he's out of his mind. Yes? If I were a sister of Jesus and he was perfect and I wasn't, yeah. I might attribute wrong motivation to him. Like, who does he think he is out there getting all this attention and blah, blah, blah. One of the commentators said the same thing. Imagine you're one of Jesus' siblings. <laughs> I mean, that would be tough, right? It's hard being, really. Right? Yes. Um, Following the yeah, so there, there may have been that fleshly um, motivation, right? But the, the point is that the, the setting here is um, everyone knows how hard it is for Jesus. I mean, he's being opposed. He really, and even in uh, verse 6 of this chapter, you know, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians how they might destroy him. So that a lot of opposition going on, and I can just understand the sentiment of a family member wanting to correct things and say, let's, this is wrong, let's, let's get you out of here. It's also not the only time people said that Jesus was, um, you know, insane or out of his mind. 
In John chapter 10, it says he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, he's, this is not the saying of one who's demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So in John chapter 10, you just read that there are other times people claiming that he's insane. Same word, by the way, Paul, when he's before Agrippa at the end of Romans, when he's on trial, and Agrippa tells him, Paul, you're out of your mind, you're insane. It's the same word. Paul has a good answer, by the way. He says, I'm out of my I am out of my mind, most excellent Festus, and I speak words of sober truth. So that's, I think, a really neat verse to remember. I am out of my mind, and I'm speaking the truth. So sort of what Jesus is doing. So we have the scene there. Any other questions about this? I don't think Mary thought he was crazy, even though it says here they were saying he's lost his senses. I don't, I guess I'm arguing my own point, but it, Mary knew he was divine, obviously, right? You read Luke, the angel speaks to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and name him Jesus. He'll be called great, son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord says, I'm, I'm your slave. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, I think we understand what's going on. She didn't have perfect sight of what was happening and what his mission was going to look like at this time, at the age of 30, as he's going to go to the cross. I don't, she didn't understand all of that. And like Lee said, remember, at that point in time, the brothers weren't believers. And uh, we'll read about that later in Mark. And also in John chapter 7, it mentions how um, they weren't believing in him yet. But they did become believers. I think all of them, for sure, James and Jude. And okay, any other questions about that? I, th I think we, uh, I've explained it the best I can about what they're thinking. No questions? Okay. Well, the next section, uh, verse 22 through 27 is really, um, well, he, he speaks his first parable in Mark here. This is the first time he's going to teach in parables. And I just sort of thought to reset the setting here, and I want to remind us that, number one, at this point in time, the leaders in Jerusalem are getting very worried because of all that we've described, his popularity with the people, um, and not only in Galilee, but it says earlier in this chapter, great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard all that he was doing and came to him. So it's huge. People from all over are flocking to Galilee to see him. And the leaders didn't like that. And they may have been used to these little rabbis having little pockets of individual teaching it was some sort of movement that they didn't approve of or they weren't in control of but this is this is big a lot lot different and they're getting pretty uh desperate i think and getting very worried about what's going on with jesus's ministry and we already know that they despise him because of what they did in nazareth because of what they just read a few verses earlier how they're conspiring with the herodians to to, to kill him basically so they're worried they want to get rid of him 
And even before we read these scenes in uh, Mark, the whole reason Jesus is in Galilee started way back after John the Baptist was taken custody. In the very first chapter of Mark, it says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And that's explained better in a few other verses, like Matthew. It says, now when Jesus knew that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. In John chapter 4, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more <coughs> disciples than John, although he was not himself baptizing, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So the point I'm making is that Jesus has been persecuted from the very beginning when John was taken custody. That's really the start of his ministry after that. And the whole reason he goes to Galilee is because he knows there's persecution on John. And Jesus' ministry is growing and he's next. So he, he's expanding his ministry into Galilee. So to make this scene even worse for the Pharisees, to make matters even worse, despite everything we've just described, if you read the uh, parallel account in Matthew, let me get my... It's Matthew chapter 12, which is a parallel account of this section. It says, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22... Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. So to make things worse, in reality, Mark doesn't record it, but they call him the devil just after he casts out another demon. Okay? That's kind of like throwing salt in their wound. So the multitudes are amazed. It's the first time in Matthew, by the way, that you hear of Jesus being called the son of David. So it's like he, Jesus has just teed up the Pharisees. They call him the son of David. They're amazed. Performs this miracle. And all they can do is say, uh... He's a devil, right? That's basically a, a, a statement that they're making um, to undermine his authority. They think it might work. He's the devil, okay? And they're so motivated that in, you read in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, so they've made this trek, this 100-mile this trek from Jerusalem. I think it's, yes, about 100 miles from Jerusalem to where Jesus is. So they're motivated and they're going to do something, travel 100 miles and take care of this problem. And the best they can do here is basically call him the devil. They want to undermine his work and they want to basically turn the crowds against him. But it doesn't work. We'll read. We have another, uh, you know, 13 chapters to go. It doesn't work here. But ultimately it does work. Right? And we'll get to that later. Ultimately, their, their motivation and their efforts to undermine Jesus works because they send him to the cross and they convince the leaders and the Romans that he is to be crucified. So, but it's not going to work here because his time hasn't come yet. Okay, so let's just read through the, the, the parables that he, he um, states. Oh, by the way, Beelzebul is really just another 
synonym for the devil. And the word itself comes from, I just want to tell you this, it's a, um, in the first century time of Jesus, that word was, was used for the devil, Beelzebub, okay? Originally, it refer, it's actually a biblical term, and it, the original word was Baalzebul, B-A-A-L, Baal, okay? He was this god of, the, of Ekron, you read about it in 1 Kings, um, chapter 1, but uh, they had changed it a little bit, and in here, it's actually a um, derogatory word for Jesus, because it literally translated, it would mean um, Lord of the Flies, actually, because, I can't, if I get this right, Zebul, some of your Bibles say it, what is, some of them don't say Baal it says Baal right? Um, Baalzebub means Lord of the Flies. So they're, so they're even making more fun of Jesus, saying he, he's Lord of the Flies. He's the devil, but you know he's the Lord of the Flies. And the flies, you know what they did, right? They were on excrement. So they're really belittling Jesus even more, not just calling him the devil, but to make a twist on this word to make it even more um, nasty of a term for him. Yeah, I've got a note that says uh, the origin is Aramaic, meaning dung god, which would yeah, be the right. Right. Lower the flies, right. That's the other word is because the flies buzz around the dung. Yeah. Man, that, I wish the translators would yeah. put that in there for us. I mean, that really adds something mm -hmm. to it when you say they're calling God that. You know. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and that's a good strategy of the devil, isn't it, that he uses even today? Just condemnation, accusation, and eventually people will believe it. Mm-hmm. Very often enough, and people are going to believe it. Yes, right. And they call him the son of the devil several times throughout the Gospels, right? So the point I was going to make is that at that time, Beelzebub, basically you can look at it as a synonym for he, he's a devil. Um, he's possessed by the devil. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. So when Jesus goes through these parables, he says, he called them to himself, so um, they're not speaking to Jesus, they're speaking to the crowd, and it's interesting how you see Jesus taking control of the situation. He, he calls them, hey, you know, I heard what you said, okay, he takes control of it and takes charge of the discussion here. He calls them to himself and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, it says in the New Testament a lot that Jesus spoke in parables to the unbelievers so that they wouldn't understand. The believers, he explained all the parables, but the unbelievers, it was a little mystery to them still, right? But I think here, it's pretty clear. They understand what he's saying, all right? It is pretty clear. How can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom basically can't be divided. If you have a kingdom fighting itself, it's going to undermine the efforts of the leader. That doesn't make any sense. A house can't be divided because it won't stand. They'll have a civil war, and it'll fight, and it's just going <clears> to <throat> degrade. Satan, if Satan's risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but he's finished. So I think in three phrases there, it just basically tells them how silly this is. And in another uh, account of this, he tells them, he said, um, your people cast out death. They, they had this exorcism things going on. You people do it. Who, 
who's behind your exorcism? So he's flipping the argument on themselves, saying Satan can't be doing this. But the irony of that is really for them, maybe it was, I don't know, they, they weren't um, godly people doing the exorcisms. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he'll plunder his house. And this is pretty clear that what Jesus is saying is, okay, Satan's a strong man, but I'm going to enter, I'm stronger, and I'm going to bind him up in order to plunder Satan's house. Satan's time on earth, I mean, his abilities are limited. He's degrading because I'm here and he's failing and I'm binding him up and I'm God, basically, is what he's saying. Not just here, but in all the other miracles he's performed in this book. So many miracles they've seen. It's so obvious that there's a divine presence here, something they have never, ever seen before, right? <clears throat> so I think the, um, the meaning of the parable is, is obvious, and it's really basically ludicrous for them to say that this miracle worker is Satan. None of the people are, are going to buy it but they may think it, the uh, leaders might really think that somehow. Any questions on that section? Because we're going to get into this next few verses, which I um, hopefully will spend a little time on at the end. I want to hear what your thoughts have been on this verse about uh, the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And um, I've always struggled with it not quite understanding what that really means. I still struggle with it some, but I think I have a better understanding through uh, studying this passage and then the other passages where it's mentioned. Um, but let's just go through it, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think this means, and then I'd like to hear from you guys to see how, how you've reconciled this. A little bit of a dilemma, right? Because, um, well, let's go through it. So basically, Jesus answers them and says, Truly I say to you, <coughs> All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So first of all, I'll say, the commentators I've read, it's not 100% clear what exactly blaspheming the Holy Spirit means. Okay, it, It's not... 100% clear, but I think we can come close to understanding what, what Jesus really means here. And there has been historically controversy about this verse and confusion about what it really means. It's said three times in the Gospels. These, one of the other times is in Matthew, which is a parallel account of this verse here. The other time is in Luke chapter 12, and the setting of Luke chapter 12 is in Judea, it's later than the Galilee, and it's in the context of Jesus listing several warnings to the Pharisees and the hypocritical people, and one of them is, don't blaspheme against, well, let's just go there real quick. It's Luke 12, verse 10. Yeah, you, if you start with verse 1, you can just see all these warnings <laughs> Jesus is giving to the Pharisees. Um, and he basically ends, I won't go through them all, but basically verse 10, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. So a little uh, more information here. He's basically giving people <laughs> some leeway 
Now it says, if you speak a word against the Son of Man, which is himself, you can speak against me and it will be forgiven you. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven you. So that verse is not in the setting of, of the current verse we're reading here. So, but let's go to this current setting. First of all, the context of it is it is, it is a really unique set of circumstances and a unique set of people, right? Jesus is uniquely performing all kinds of miracles. It's as glaringly obvious that God is here, right? It's, it's, to anybody, it's something miraculous is happening here. And the Pharisees say that that's the devil, okay? So, you, I mean, you really couldn't set up something more diametrically opposed. Wonderful miracles that anybody can see, and then the evil nature of these Pharisees who were calling it the opposite, actually, calling it a work of Satan. So... Just know that. It's a unique set of circumstances. You also see in Mark that the Pharisees are progressing in their sin. At first, remember, they're just thinking about Jesus. Why is he doing that on the Sabbath? And he says, oh, because he knew their hearts, he asked them. I can't remember the exact verse, but basically they're, they're, you first see the Pharisees just sort of thinking evil. And then they mumble among themselves. And then they mumble among the people. And then they actually confront Jesus. So you have this progression of um, sort of sin of the Pharisees. And it sort of comes to a pinnacle here in chapter 3. First they read in their hearts. Then they start thinking about confronting him. Then they conspire to kill him. And basically you have the vision of people who are really hardened, callous, unrepentant, evil people. That, that's what you see here with the Pharisees. And two... With hindsight, we know, and we'll get to this at the end, but ultimately they, they, they show themselves to be this. They show themselves to be people who won't have eternal life, at least in the Bible accounts of these men who sent him to the cross. There's never any evidence that they actually ever repent. And by the way, repentance is never mentioned in this or the other two accounts. You don't see anything about repentance in these verses, but we know from the rest of the Bible that you have to repent to be saved. And these people never seem to have repented. So it would be consistent, that's what I'm saying. Jesus' sort of prediction here that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you won't be saved. It may be just another way of saying he knew their hearts, they weren't saved, and that's why they're able to blaspheme, and that's why they have the eternal sin. Okay, let's go through his sort of verse by verse. First thing, he says, truly I say. So whenever Jesus says, truly I say, this is you know time to... Listen, this is his introduction to what he's about to say. So what he is about to say is very, very serious. And the next thing he says after that is, um, where am I, verse 28, yeah. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. All right, that we don't have a problem reconciling, right? Because we know so many other places in the Bible it says that all sins are forgiven if you repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. And there's so many examples just off the top of your head in the Bible of people who committed grievous sins and were forgiven. Like if you ask the world, what's the most grievous sin you can think of? What is it? Murder. So David committed murder. What's the most second worst one pretty much? on people's list. Adultery is up there, right? Those are two really bad sins, and David did both of them, right? So 
And David says to Nathan, I have it here in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. So wonderful. All sins are forgiven. Even someone as wicked in a way as David was. And he's forgiven. Okay, a few others I want to mention. Peter, Mark chapter 14. We'll get to that later. He began to, this is talking about Peter. It says, but he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you're talking about. That's pretty bad, right? After he spent three years with him and seen all the miracles and they actually even given powers to cast out demons by Jesus. And, and I think this is the slave girl comes up to him and he curses and swears, I don't know him. So that's a pretty bad sin. And he's restored. And in fact, it's a highlight of John's gospel when Peter at the end of the gospel is restored. It's very important because he's the rock, right? He, he's going to be the leader of the new church. So... There is a sinful man that was forgiven. Um, the Apostle Paul. Paul, yeah, thank you. That's my next one. <laughs> Apostle Paul. <laughs> I mean, these are the highlights, really. Think of Paul. I, mean, it, this, I want to read for you First Timothy chapter 1, 12. We know about Paul, right? He's at the foot of Stephen being martyred, and, and he was breathing out fire and death against the uh, early believers. And First Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly, and he even used the same word, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect <coughs> patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Ah, a wonderful verse which says the same thing that he says here in the first half of verse 28 which is all sins will be forgiven men. Prodigal son parable, that's another story which basically tells us all people are forgiven. Okay, so we don't have a problem understanding that. Second thing I want to look at is blasphemy. So blasphemy is a word which basically means, well, it's, it's verbal. It's a verbal expression, okay? Synonyms for blasphemy would be slander, profane speech, speaking against sacred things. You know, Jesus was one of the things, he's committing blasphemy by telling someone their sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. And in the Old Testament law, you couldn't blaspheme the name of God, be punishable by death, right? So they understood blasphemy as being slanderous, profane speak against sacred things, against God, insolent language, defiant irreverence, because these are sort of synonyms which define what blasphemy really is. It's verbal, Okay. But Shane, today, you know, <laughs> what, what comes out of your mouth? And this is what I, the point I want to make. What come, have you ever blasphemed anybody? I mean, be honest. You don't have to tell us. But slandered somebody where you really had it in for them? Guilty. Hmm? Yeah, right. I, I've had it. More than once. Right. But where does that come from? It's not a spontaneous thing that bubbles out of your mouth, Right. It's something you've stewed over and you continue to stew over and think and mull and it comes right out of here. So 
I think that's part of what Jesus is saying. If you're going to blaspheme somebody, it's thoughtful, and it's in your heart, it's in your brain, it's in your soul, it's in this part of you that is the heart. I mean, out of the heart comes, what's the, what's the verse? Someone help me. Out of, the of the out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, out of the abundance of their hearts, they would blaspheme. And if out of the abundance of your heart, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that's unforgivable sin. We understand that, right? Um, I want to read a couple other verses for you because in Matthew's, this is interesting too, the use of the words, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. So Jesus is, again, in, in 12, rebuking the Pharisees. Let me just read, actually, 12, verse 30 through 34. Uh, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And then verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So I think it's clear that the blasphemy is not just the words, it's, it's, it's what's coming out of these people's heart. Okay, a couple of verses I, I want to read for you. Psalm nineteen fourteen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Matthew fifteen, eighteen to nineteen. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. And then Luke chapter 6, verse 45 and 46, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Okay, so even though blasphemy is verbal, it comes from the heart. And then I want to touch a little bit on the Holy Spirit, because in a couple of these verses, Jesus said it's basically, you can utter blasphemy against me, but it's different to utter blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I think what he means there is um, Jesus incarnate human on earth. Um, someone criticizing him is somehow different than this, this hatred or this anger toward God. And I think it has to do, you know, read Paul's First Timothy verse. He said, I did this in ignorance. Something along those lines where... Um, Paul was able to repent of his sin. And this blasphemy he's talking about the Holy Spirit implies a person with God's foresight knows their heart is just rotten. And the fruit of that rotten heart that will ultimately not make it to heaven is their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the best I can do to explain how that distinction... Um, how that's, Another thing to consider, Tim, remember in Christ's humanity, mm -hmm. how did he not sin? How did he perform all the things he did? 
wasn't just in his deity, it was also by the power of the Spirit. Right, very good. So these miracles he is, he is performing is, yes, because he's God, but also he's carrying on his ministry as the man Christ mm-hmm. under the power of the Spirit. So when you're right. blaspheming what he's doing, you're mm-hmm. blaspheming the Spirit. Very good, yeah. Yeah, even the Holy Spirit was in Jesus, right? And that, that is the agent that was helping him in his humanity, enabling him to perform these miracles. And that's what they're blaspheming, right? Very good, thank you. So a few more verses or um, teaching, I guess, on the Holy Spirit because uh, it might help us understand a little bit more. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is a good description of how the Holy Spirit helps us and illumines us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 through 16. This is Paul's description of the Holy Spirit. I think that's correct. Yeah, just as it is written, things which eyes not seen and ears not heard, which have not entered the hearts of men, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given us by God. These things we speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And then he says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? So the Spirit searches all things. It's Spirit's omniscient. It illumines us and helps us understand. It's the work of the Spirit in our lives that helps us understand the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us insight about God's truth. Um, and to blaspheme that basically rejects everything divine that we can know, right? So thank God that the Spirit helps us to understand these things and illumines our, our minds and our hearts and our spirit. The Holy Spirit's omniscient. The Holy Spirit is pleasant, present at creation. You just read Genesis chapter 1. The Holy Spirit indwells every single believer. That's lots of places. Romans 8, I think of, verse 9 through 11. Uh, the Holy Spirit testifies to us. And I want to read this verse for you in John 16. You don't have to flip there. I'll just read it. It's John 16, verse <clears throat> 13 to 14. Um, a verse that tells us about this internal testimony of the Spirit to us who are believers. It says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He'll guide you into all the truth. For He'll not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He'll speak. And He'll disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. So it's sort of what Lee was saying. Christ is being glorified on earth by the Spirit. And those... Um, Pharisees and scribes and leaders are thoroughly, wholeheartedly, from the deep pit of their heart, rejecting that. So I think to round this out, what Jesus is saying here, and by the way, a footnote, because um, in Luke chapter 12, you have the same saying about don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and it's not in the context of this unique time 
that we've talked about with the, um, all the miracles and the, the uh, Pharisees culminating into this hatred of Jesus, because this is a separate scene, one thought is that this was just a known truism that Jesus taught. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. And it may be synonymous, this is how I conclude it actually, because if you read um, what Shane read today, in fact, can we just go there real quick, because this is going to sort of summarize how I, just in my mind, view this phrase about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, verse 10, Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. No one understands. None seek after God. All have turned aside. Together they're useless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they keep deceiving. I thought of this today. That this is blasphemy in a way. Their tongues are deceiving. And Shane talked about this open grave. It was so powerful. Um, their throat is an open grave to look down into that rotten heart. Um, the poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So, in the end, all people who are unbelievers reject everything about God, right? All people who end up perishing and not having faith are rejecting all the good work of the Holy Spirit. They see all the things around us, all the blessings that God has given, even unbelievers, the sun and the rain and family and everything. And unbelievers ultimately blaspheme that, right? They reject it. They don't need it. They've got their own system. So to me... I don't struggle so much with this verse anymore because I can, in my mind, say, yes, this is the unforgivable sin. But the other way of saying that is, of course, the unforgivable sin is not having faith in the Lord and not repenting. So, in my mind, they mesh pretty nicely. And, and uh, I don't struggle with it so much <laughs> anymore since I've studied it. And go ahead, Randy. Yeah, but, the, the key is in understanding all this is that we're all born with this Right. We're all born with this rejection, as we see in Romans 3. Yes. And so we can't begin to examine our heart and think, okay, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Right. And, th and try to reason, you know, my thoughts. Right. The, the conclusion is, yes, I have, and I reject Christ. But the Holy Spirit is that, the, um, the element of faith in how we believe. He mm -hmm. brings faith. And we see Christ begin teaching on this in the parable of the soul yep. and the idea of him teaching in parables because those mm -hmm. uh, may hear, but they will not understand. They will see, but they will not perceive, mm -hmm. which is what God had predicted in Isaiah's ministry. that You will preach, but they will yep. be hardened through your ministry, mm -hmm. which was discouraging for Isaiah, but simply to reveal their blasphemous hearts. And so when we, it's, it's the sin of unbelief, yeah. rejecting the Spirit of God, and he's centering it on the fact that they're accusing him of having an unclean spirit, mm -hmm. and, and they're rejecting his deity. Yes. Uh, and, and so that was just revealing the blasphemy already in the Pharisees' hearts. Yeah. Yeah, very good. I mean, you got there. That last verse, uh, 31 of Mark 4, where we are, 
says, um, yeah, so Jesus gives them this discourse on the blasphemy and the Holy Spirit, verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So this was the catalyst for him to state the unforgivable sin is the Holy blaspheme the Holy Spirit. My take on that is, you know, they didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit in a technical way, right? I mean, as far as speaking against the Holy Spirit, they, they just said Satan is doing this work. My take on this is that this is sort of a warning to Jesus. He, he knows their heart, right? He, he knows their heart, and ultimately they're hardened, and they're going to perish. Um, and he sees them attacking him, saying, you're calling Jesus Satan. And he's like a warning, hey, uh, the unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is ultimately what you're going to do. And uh, I, I see that last verse is a little bit of a warning to them. I guess I want to round out the teaching on this to say, it's not a, um, blaspheming the Holy Spirit isn't a, a landmine that a Christian might stumble on and that's the end, right? And that's somehow the teaching I've heard in the past is like, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's, the Christian won't do it. God will protect the Christian from ever doing that because he's sovereign and you're saved. Right? So don't think of it that way. Um, this, one of the commentators I read, R.T. France, has a good closing sentence on this whole thing. He says about this phrase, It is a warning to those who adopt the position of deliberate rejection, rejection and antagonism. So it is a warning to those people. <laughs> you know, be careful you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And he said it is not an attempt to frighten those of tender conscience. And Again, all the commentators I read, there's a pastoral people that said, you know, all of them have had people come and ask them the question, I'm fearful I may have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And all the commentators said, that's not the person that needs to worry about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So don't ever look at it as something that might trip one up. Um, it's ultimately rejection of God is how we're to look at it. And... A special warning to those who are teachers and leaders, because see here that it was the Pharisees, it was the leaders, it was the experts of the like Shane was talking about today. You know, you can be really smart and know everything. And I think it's a special warning for people who are the leaders and teachers uh, to be sure to examine their heart, that it's not some intellectual pursuit like it was for them or self-righteousness or whatever they were valuing. Um, that it's they, times people that may even come to some of you and express concern about their own salvation. And, mm -hmm. and I have people uh, bring that up in their life. I'm, I'm very encouraged. Because mm -hmm. first of all, you're concerned about it. Yep. Yep. Is, to me, that tenderness you're talking about, that yeah. the Spirit of God is at work. Right. Because even the unbeliever that is deceived in their faith is not sensitive to that. They're steeped in their pride of self-righteousness. Right. right. And then the Blatant unbeliever could, could care less. Right. As the uh, take. So. Yep. They wouldn't even have that thought on their radar to ask about it. Yeah. So. One thought, too. Um, we might not think we're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, but that passage in First Corinthians 2 and Paul's writing, it's interesting. I had studied one time this passage in depth, and it was such a blessing because he begins that chapter in First Corinthians 2 talking about he didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom or any of those things, but as he opens up with the Holy Spirit, he's declaring to them the charge that what he's speaking and what he's writing 
is the Spirit of God. So mm-hmm. that, I mean, when he's saying, we could read that and think, oh, am I speaking those things? Or am I? But actually, it was really meant for those apostle uh, writers in, in mm-hmm. the New Testament. So when we don't heed God's word, or nowadays it's very popular, I believe this part of the Bible, I don't believe that part of the Bible. Yeah. We are blaspheming the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is the author of his word. And it's the yeah. word that's now you know, written. So just as like we would blaspheme Christ in person, this is his word. And that was Paul's charge, that what I'm writing to you, it is the mind of the Lord. And how can we know that? I'm writing it to you. I'm telling you. So that is a weighty consideration mm-hmm. when you pick and choose what you believe as God's word. Very good. So it's really encouraging if you come to a difficult passage like this to not have an attitude of, well, um, well, don't get frustrated. Don't think uh, that somehow there was a mistake in the writers that, or like a lot of people think about the Gospels the way they were written, you know, that, well, they all sort of half got it right. Mark wrote his and then Matthew copied it and, you know, they kind of moved things around at their will just to suit a, something they had observed previously and wanted to make it all work out just so. So don't think that God's word is not um, sufficient. You come to a tough passage, just rest and say, thank you, Lord. Help me. The Holy Spirit help me. And if I don't understand it now, wh- over time I'll understand it more. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm done. Um, it just, to me, it seems very stark, though, because Fully manifested, right, at Pentecost. And, and to me, it's, it's almost, I've always kind of thought about this as, you may, you may speak things to me, I'm here in the flesh, the Holy Spirit hasn't been given to you. In other words, you can't actually be fully saved, right. because you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And But, you know, there will be a time where you will have this Holy Spirit, <coughs> essentially the same thing it's like Romans mm-hmm. 3 where it's talking about just or Romans 1 where you've completely rejected God you've suppressed the knowledge of the truth mm-hmm. and God has given you over and there is no salvation and it's almost <clears throat> in a way kind of telling them this is going to happen the Holy Spirit's going to come and you're going to you know, they'll be you'll blast him against that and if that happens you will have no good intentions and no salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it similar to that. But I see it in the context, too, of earlier on in this book, where basically Jesus, it says, Jesus knew their hearts. And in John, it talks about um, Jesus was not entrusting himself to all of them who were coming to him claiming to be Lord, Lord, Lord. And it says, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to all of them because he knew all men's hearts. So, I think in God's sovereign ability to see the beginning and the end, uh, only those people who blaspheme the Holy Spirit are those who reject Christ. They have to be one and the same. And I, th- I think there is mystery to know. But I don't think it's something that we can just trip up over. Do you know what I mean? I just don't think it's something that someone who's not been chosen for life is going to, oops, trip over this sin and then not be saved. The evidence for the, and I want to, we'll finish with this, Matthew 27, the same people who, I'm sure it's the same people, if not exactly the same people, it's the same group of people, 
Well, it is, because it says the Pharisees. Just read that, Matthew 27, verse 20 through 23. Basically, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they, and they get the people around the cross to join in their you know, vicious, angry, nasty, demonic plan. Uh, let me find it. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Okay, so these same people. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. Crucify. So, same people, right? That I think the Lord rounds it out for us. It shows the fruit that they bore ultimately. Um, rejecting the Holy Spirit and rejecting Christ. I hope it helps. It's a tough verse, and lots of people have struggled with it. Um, I couldn't help but think of Peter's sermon when he mentioned that the, as these Pharisees began to openly accuse Christ and want to uh, bias the crowds mm -hmm. against him to ultimately him to the cross and the deception but yes. Peter of course says none of Israel listen to these words Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in the midst just as you yourselves this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge yeah. of God you nailed to a cross by your hand so yeah. this was God's plan but he yeah. still brought the judgment upon these men yeah that accused him through the blasphemous, you know, yep. work in their heart yep. to lead him to the cross. So we want to root for Christ as we root for the and get angry at these men. Yeah. And think, no, it can't happen. This is a, a righteous man. Mm -hmm. But this was God's predetermined plan, and it could have been us. Yeah. Uh, other than the grace of God. Because mm -hmm. we were born in that blasphemous heart. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Okay, any other comments or questions yeah, disagreements a, yeah the passage that's coming to my mind that's it's in contrast to this about the spirit's work in the life of believers Romans 8 Romans 18 27 yeah. where it says likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the Lord Yes. Just, to me, that's like there's such a stark contrast there yes. in his work in the lives of believers and then unbelievers and those who seek their destiny. I, I was thinking the same thing. So God's sovereignty in it all. You know, he uses Christ was predetermined to die, and he used wicked men to do it. The same way, he knows our prayers before we even utter them, and he knows the good things that he'll bring to in our lives. Yet he uses our prayers to bring them about. And we're, so in the same way, his sovereignty rules over all of it. Yep, I think so. Very good. Anything else? Okay, thanks. Well, we'll finish chapter 3 next week. I thought we'd finish it today, but just a few verses. And then we'll... Chapter 4 is, um, just so you know, the longest parable in Mark. The whole chapter is a parable of the seed. Um, so read up on it, and we'll go through that next week. Thanks. Thank you.